Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast. Nathan is a certified holistic cancer coach, 20-time award-winning documentary filmmaker, competitive CrossFit athlete, and best-selling author of Becoming Cancer-Free. With nearly two decades in independent natural health research and education, Nathan shares his top solutions for preventing and overcoming disease while optimizing health and improving human performance. Each week, Nathan brings on highly renowned experts to share natural and holistic health science, strategies, and breakthroughs for living your healthiest, happiest, and most fulfilling life. And now, here's Nathan Crane. Hello and welcome to Natural Health with Nathan Crane. Today I'm really excited to share this interview I did not too long ago with a true pioneer in the field of natural holistic and integrative medicine, Dr. Joel Furman. Dr. Furman is a board-certified family physician, six-time New York Times best-selling author, and an internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing who specializes in helping people learn how to prevent reverse chronic diseases using nutritional methods. Dr. Furman coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style designed to prevent cancer, slow aging, and extend lifespan. I've done a number of incredible interviews with Dr. Furman over the years. Every time I get to sit with him and ask him questions, I learn something new. Uh, if you've listened to him, read his books, uh, heard from him, watched his PBS specials, you've already learned quite a bit. And I promise you, you watch this, you're still going to learn something new. He's a wealth of knowledge. So without further ado, Dr. Joel Furman, enjoy. My pleasure. Great to be here. So diving right in, from your experience, and you have a lot of it, can you share with us what exactly is cancer and how does it show up in the human body? Well, keep in mind, I'm not just speaking from experience. I'm, I'm speaking from a, a, a degree of scientific literature and studying the, what happens to the human body. And the human body essentially has the ability to protect against damage from cancer developing. We can repair broken DNA crosslinks. The body has the ability to repair methylation defects, prevent the accumulation of metabolic toxins and reactive oxygen species. In other words, what I'm saying right now is that cancer is something that accumulates over time with inflammation, with irritation, inflammation, and then it gets to the point where we're overwhelming the cell's defense, the cell's defenses to keep itself clean, and then the, it starts to replicate uncontrollably. And how it, you know, obviously people know how cancer appears, but it usually appears um, with promoting angiogenesis. In other words, these cells, in order to replicate rapidly, have to call a blood supply. So our normal blood supply has to be activated to perfuse these cells that want to replicate a lot. And so cancer cells secrete angiogenesis promoters. The word angiogenesis means to promote the growth of new blood vessels. And so the promotion of these cells are starting to excrete angiogenesis promoters and our blood vessels grow new tributaries, new branches to fuel cancers, the growth of cancers. So when we have cancer growth, we always have these longevity proteins like SIRT1 and AMP kinase are, are diminished and mTOR, which is an unfavorable protein buildup, is, is heightened in almost all invasive and metastatic cancers. So the, what I'm saying right now is there's a certain abnormality going on that is permissive, allowing cancers to replicate. We eat a diet rich in phytochemicals with the full spectrum 
of nutrients humans need and without putting in toxic substances into our body, our body is essentially already cancer proof. Cancer represents some defect or some abnormality that was in the lifestyle or the environment that allowed it to be caused. It's not the inevitable consequence of aging. It's not normal. It's hardly even occurred in human history. The first cancers that were noted in the medical literature that were written about were scrotal cancers written um, that we noticed happening in chimney sweeps in the early 1700s. So um, even on studies on mummified remains from thousands of years ago, hardly saw any cancers in human species. It was just not a, a, not a cause of death, you know, um, eons ago. So in layman's terms, what is cancer? What I hear you saying is if the body is, well, let's say mind, emotions, body, the whole human experience is functioning as it's supposed to, then cancer does not show up. And if body's out of balance or the systems of the body are out of balance or out of whack or out of their uh, original, let's say, healed or whole state, then cancer is a result of that. Yes, it's that cells become damaged and they're damaged usually by something abnormal. For example, people could, you know, so there's something, the American diet, you know, is exceedingly abnormal. We're consuming carcinogenic substances. We're not eating nat enough um, natural plant foods with the full exposure to, to phytochemicals that fuel the ARE, the antioxidant response element in the cell's job is to remove free radicals and toxins and to repair methylation defects of the DNA and essentially protect ourselves from cancer. And that mechanism is fueled by phytochemicals, especially from green vegetables. And without exposure to, the, to these nutrients humans need, we're a green vegetable dependent animal. And we're, the American population is only eating 2% of calories from vegetables. And so we're eating a diet with a lot of sweets in it, with a lot of animal products, with nuts, with insufficient amount of plant vegetation as a primate that our immune system is dependent on. So I'm saying that when you have a diet that's well-designed the way humans are supposed to, that's gonna maximize human longevity, the, the cell becomes almost cancer-proof, even removing exposure to environmental toxins, even it has the ability to suppress genetic alterations and genetic defects that if not suppressed would lead to increased risk of cancer. A healthy cell and a healthy body has the ability to suppress those genetic alterations, like the GSTP1 gene that increases the risk of breast cancer, for example. And let me just say that, for example, the leading cause of cancer death, or the leading cause of death in children, other than accidents, is acute blastocytic leukemia. And it's already been linked in scientific studies to the lack of green vegetables in the mother's diet even two years prior to conception. So the diet that the parents eat, even before the baby is conceived, affects a, a child's risk of cancer, for example. And also the exposure to luncheon meats, like hot dogs and bacon, not even during pregnancy, but even prior to pregnancy, affects a child's risk of developing cancer. So I'm saying it's not just the diet we eat, because the, our eggs that make us are living in our, in our mother's body her whole life that she's alive. So when she's five years old and 10 years old and 15 years old, the egg that made you was living there and has the chance to be somewhat damaged should she be exposed to, top, to um, carcinogenic substances or eat a very poor diet or eating luncheon meats and fast foods. So the worst your diet your, your parents were before they even conceived you or you were born could affect your health as well. So we're gonna get a lot more into diet and nutrition and what 
what you recommend uh, in a little bit. And before we do, I want to, one, just clarify or hear from you this notion that a lot of people seem to believe that cancer is something you can catch, like a cold or a flu. And that's often how our medical industry treats it, right? They try to get it and take it out of you versus recognizing that it's something that your body is creating because of, let's say, diet and lifestyle and, and habits and environment and toxins and so forth. Um, what is your take on that? What, what have you seen in regards to, to that understanding and helping people recognize and identify? It's not something you catch. It's something that you create in the body. That's right. But, but I think that's what you're saying is generally well accepted and not controversial. In other words, I don't think that um, traditional medical doctors believe it's something we catch and they recognize that cancer has known causes and those causes are a combination of environmental toxins and also poor diet and poor nutrition. I think that um, I think that's generally recognized that, um, that that what we eat has an effect on cancer and certain foods have more powerful anti-cancer effects than others. In other words, what I'm saying right now is that even when we talked about angiogenesis, um, we know that certain foods like mushrooms have anti-angiogenic effects, and they also have effects that are anti-aromatase to lower estrogen. And I, so, for example, I mean, it's well recognized that higher levels of circulating estrogen and higher levels of localized estrogen in breast tissue increases risk of breast cancer. It's not luck. It's a biochemical and hormonal um, adjustment that's something abnormal there. We know that when a person is overweight, for example, let's say you have an extra 25 pounds of fat on your body. Well, those fat cells are somewhat hypoxic, which means they don't have an excellent blood supply. They're, they have a marginal blood supply. The fat cells secrete angiogenesis promoters to try to claim a, a fat supply. And in doing so, they permit fat cells are more permissive to allow other tumors to grow on your body in thinking fat like a tumor. But the fat on your body makes you insulin resistant. In other words, the insulin, the insulin can't be uptake by cells as readily because they're blocked by fat. So now the pancreas has to secrete more insulin in response to every carbohydrate you eat. And the high level of insulin has growth promoting and angiogenesis promotion effects. And because fat cells also secrete more cytokines and inflammatory, um, inflammatory mediators, they stimulate aromatase production. And so that means you produce more estrogen. So a person who's eating poorly and overweight, their breast exposure to estrogen can be 10 times the level of localized estrogen exposure in the breast tissue compared to somebody that was relatively slim and eating a healthy diet with lots of vegetables and mushrooms and onions. So what, I, so what I'm saying is that the scientific literature is giving us a ton of information about this today, and it's becoming more generally accepted that we can win the war on cancer. And I make this statement often. I say to people that we've landed the man on the moon already. And what I mean by that is we already know what, what causes cancer, and we already know how to prevent um, more than 90% of cancers. We can look back 100 years ago and see even in relatively recent history, countries had 150th to 100th the amount of cancers we had in this country. And even today, even in modern times, we have populations of the world with much less cancer. When they move here and they eat the way we eat, they, you know, so they develop the same rate of cancer we do. So what I'm saying right now is we have enough information today to win the war on breast cancer and prostate cancer, these common cancers. And by that, by win the war, I mean to teach the population a way to live and to eat so we, could, so we wouldn't see these cancers occurring. 
You know, it's a different story when we're talking about using nutrition to treat cancer. Then we have obviously some early stage cancers that are more responsive to nutritional interventions. And we do see a lot of scientific data showing the same factors that prevent cancer, increase longevity and interfere with cancer cell replication and prevent cancer recurrence in people who already have cancer. But as cancers become more advanced and more advanced and people get closer to their death, there's obviously much more um, difficulty in reversing these diseases nutritionally. So it's not a black and white issue. Um, but you know, as you may know from my um, you know, 30 year experience seeing patients and working in this, in the, with these family of people with, medical, with serious medical conditions, using nutritional excellence as a primary modality has been very, so incredibly rewarding and touching to see people with cancer make complete, make recoveries and can't say it's happened or it happens all the time or you can predict when it's, you know, but I can give some examples of a, um, one of my patients, her name was Pam. She was, had um, metastatic ovarian cancer that went into her lung and she had four liters of fluid removed from her lung and given about three to four months to live and she's thriving and alive today, um, 17 years later. And we can just go over one another person with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that um, responded within six to nine months of having these um, masses shrink up and disappear and following a nutritarian this approach, which includes, of course, the high nutrient diet, but with some additional juices and things. So it's just, um, you know, so we, we have in our community, as you know, that, um, that ignoring nutrition and not placing nutritional excellence in the toolbox is, is not doing the best for the person's opportunity to get well, or even when they have an advanced cancer. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. You had mentioned that there are generally recognized uh, causes of cancer, scientifically validated causes of cancer. Um, can, you, can you state what those are? Yes. We mentioned one of them. Um, one of them is, is eating a diet with excessive amount of calories and becoming overweight. And you people are aware that becoming diabetic increases your risk of cancer as well because being diabetic means you have uh, metabolic problems with sugar and insulin, which increases your risk of cancer. So we're saying here that these things that increase risk of, of cancer are, are fried foods, processed foods, a diet with a very high glycemic diet is well established, that more white flour and white rice and sugars and soft drinks and marshmallows and donuts and cookies and crackers are dangerous and increase risk of cancer. And, and because they do not contain nutrients in them, they strip the body of nutrients. When we process calories that don't have a significant micronutrient load, we create a stream of free radicals and other toxic compounds. And then the American diet also has a huge amount of animal products. And as the high glycemic carbohydrates raise growth-promoting insulin, which is a growth-promoting hormone, especially in excess, it's promoting excessive growth and excessive angiogenesis. Also, IGF-1, 
insulin-like growth factor one in excess also is a growth-promoting hormone that works as a sandwich with insulin to be very permissive in allowing cancers to replicate. So IGF-1 is a primary growth hormone in childhood. It raises up to, could raise up to unfavorable level in adulthood, especially if we eat too much animal protein, not just the fat with the saturated fat in animal product, but actually like we're talking here about skim milk and egg whites and lean and lean meats and fishes. We're talking about if you, as you overeat protein, Protein drives growth, and growth promotes cancer, and too much protein in the diet can, can increase risk of IGF-1, and also a diet with a lot of animal protein, per se, creates a lot of gram-negative bacteria in the gut that then they produce certain toxic um, compounds, such as TMAO, or trimethylamine oxide. So what, what I'm saying right now is the right type of hormonal and biochemical events happen when we have a diet that's rich in processed foods and animal products. I always make the joke and I say the American diet's been designed by ISIS or Al-Qaeda because we have this diet that's high in animal products and high in processed foods simultaneously and the American foods they like to eat like pizza and macaroni and cheese and hamburgers and you know we're mixing together our white flour sugar product with a slab of animal product is probably the most dangerous diet style you could eat except if you add fried foods to it. Now you cook oils at high temperature and you cause rancid and damaging compounds like french fries on top of that meal, and you've really got a cancer bomb ready to explode. You know, the, even the, the link between even one serving of fast food french fries per week increases risk of breast cancer, for example, by 26%. Even the moderate intake of these dangerous foods dramatically increases risk of cancer, and we're on a, a, a death wish in America to, as much, to make the diet as cancer-promoting as it seems like it possibly can be because we've designed it to the exact diet style that's most cancer-promoting that we could possibly have done. Talking a little bit more about meat and dairy animal products, you had said that too much protein is directly linked to higher exposure to cancer rates, but also you had mentioned the meat itself uh, causing a, a type of bacteria in the gut. Um, what other kinds of evidence or literature have you seen in terms of how meat and dairy and animal products aside from the protein side of it, promote higher exposure to cancer? Well, keep in mind the foundational principle or primary principle of a nutritarian diet to extend lifespan and protect against cancer is moderate caloric restriction, is not overeating, maintaining a relatively lean body through your, as you age in the environment or in the context of micronutrient excellence. In other words, when, and, and the opposite is also valid here because when you eat a diet with more micronutrients and fiber, it naturally suppresses our appetites. We don't have to overeat. When your diet is low in nutrients and low in antioxidants and phytochemicals and low in these micronutrients, you become a calorie-consuming monster, like a food addict who can't control the food intake. Foundationally, the foods that have the high amounts of micronutrients are colorful plants, have a lot of natural antioxidants and phytonutrients that protect against cancer that the body utilizes to arm our protective immune system. Both processed foods like pasta, bread, salad oil, mayonnaise, donuts, crackers, cookies, soft drinks, breakfast bars, those foods do not contain a significant micronutrient load. They don't contain the fibers that promote the good bacteria, and they don't protect, contain these phytonutrients that are so critical. And animal products also have a low micronutrient exposure because they have some vitamins in them and some minerals, but they do not contain the phytochemicals and antioxidants that arm the immune system to protect against cancer. We put the, that diet together with only 2% of vegetables, 
we can't have adequate protection, immune system support. So what I'm saying right now is that where the money's at, the foods that are most protective are the natural plants, especially G-bombs. And that acronym G-bombs, G-B-O-M-B-S, stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, which are identified by, in the scientific literature as having dramatic protection against all types of cancers and reduction of cancer death in people who already have cancer. For example, studies on women who already have breast cancer checked when they have flaxseed muffins or flax seeds in their diet are shown to have longer lifespan, less death rate from cancer over the 10 year period that followed, and less chance of recurrence of cancer when they eat the flax seeds. What I'm saying, women with mushroom, eat mushrooms have 64% lower rate of breast cancer occurrence in one Asian study. In other words, there's, for each one of these foods, there's, there's um, uh, scores of studies that show how protected these foods are, these plant foods against cancer. Likewise, we have the same data collection on animal product consumption. As animal products go up in the diet, you know, as a percent of total calories, like the blue zones where they're all less than 10%, to areas of the world that are eating 20%, 30% or more, when we look at all the epidemiologic studies, including the Seventh-day Adventist study, which is the only real blue zone in the United States, and they're the longest lived population in the United States, of, 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 um, of, because about 30% of them are vegetarians of some type, and they eat generally less animal products. But we can, they're able to do studies on them to measure how much animal products they eat because there's a diverse amount of animal product consumption in that group compared to the other Americans. And they can measure and see as animal products go up, so does, of course, a shortened lifespan, increased cardiovascular mortality, and cancer mortality. But in generally speaking, your question about the animal protein versus the animal fat I mean, certainly, if you barbecue, you fry, you darken or bake or cook animal products under high heat, it forms more dangerous compounds, you know, more heterocyclic amines and nitrosamino compounds and, you know, and other types of, um, you know, we all have these dangerous compounds being formed when meats are cooked at high temperature. But we also see from the studies we have available that as people eat more plant protein, their rate of cancer and heart attack death goes down. That means we eat hemp seeds and green vegetables and beans and, so, and soybeans and whatever. It, when we're seeing plant, high protein plant foods go up, it's lifespan extending and high protein animal products go up, it's lifespan shortening. And I think it's, it's not just the fact that the plant proteins are associated with a high amount of fibers and phytochemicals. That's of course very true, but it's also that when our body that plant proteins are not as biologically complete. So the body is not gonna make an excessive amount of growth hormone. It's gonna complete the protein in order to make the amount of hormone it needs by taking you know, amino acids that are stored in the interstitial lining of the, you know, the villi, or we're gonna absorb some of the bacteria in the gut or some of the extra food. So we're gonna complete the protein to make sufficient amount of hormone for our sustenance, health, and growth. But when we eat animal protein, there's no regulating the hormonal production. When you eat excess animal protein, the excess animal products you eat is turned into hormone and we make excessive amounts that we don't need. And it's the excessive amount of hormone production that we didn't need to have made that can then be permissive to promote growth when you shouldn't be growing as an adult. So it's a little complicated, with a lot of factors involved. I'm just going over some of the factors to make it more clear to people.
the excess animal protein, uh, like what actually happens with that in the body? What, what does the body do with that? Does it store it? You said it turns it into hormones. So those hormones then do what? Where, where do they go? How does it affect the body? How does it directly rate, relate to cancer, either growth, uh, et cetera? Right, because the American diet is highly growth promoting. And then in conjunction with having these growth promoting hormones, that are allowing angiogenesis. So we're saying here that animal products raise IGF-1, and we eat too many of them, to an unfavorable level in middle age that, that could be too high. And that's gonna be allowing cells to replicate that shouldn't be replicating. When a person gets a diagnosis of prostate cancer at age 70, or breast cancer at age 70, they didn't have these cancer cells start to replicate at 65. It was usually 10 years earlier or more. So it could be the 10 or 15 years earlier that you start to have early cells that were becoming abnormal. And maybe even 10 years prior to that, that the cells were becoming dysplastic before they became cancerous. So it's a 20 years, it's a long cycle that you got cancer at age 60. It didn't, it happened. It's a, it's damage that was occurring to these cells all through life. It's not something that just happened to you right before your lump was discovered. When that lump is first visible to the human eye, the size of a head of a pin even, it's had to have replicated slowly over the years to get that big enough so the human eye can see it. And by that point, a lot of these cells have less than left the nest already. So what I'm saying to you now in response to your question about what the body does with the animal product, we're talking about people eating excessive amounts of animal products for many years. So they're getting, so they're getting a dietary and chemical framework in the body where you're getting lack of nutrients, excessive production of free radicals. The cells become bathed in reactive oxygen species from the diet, which is high in processed foods and animal products and low in vegetation. So they're bathing themselves in free radicals and other toxic species. And we don't have enough of the antioxidants and phytonutrients to remove toxins. Even the phytic acid in grains and in beans and in nuts and even the phytic acid binds toxic metals like cadmium, arsenic, lead, and pulls it out of the body. So we eat more of these, so, and we're getting microplastics now that are damped being in the environment in, our, in fish. Um, so in any case, it, we're, we're building up um, abnormal substances in our body and our body's allowing these abnormal substances to stay there and cause damage because the diet is not, um, the, the dietary quality is too poor to allow it to repair itself or remove the buildup and a slow accumulation of these metabolic toxins. While at the same time, we have expect excessive exposure to hormones that are promoting growth. So while we're in the framework of a cell that's building up metabolic toxins, eating a diet with too much high glycemic carbohydrates like honey and maple syrup and marshmallows, which is producing excess of insulin, and too much animal protein, which is producing growth, IGF-1. And this IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, and insulin package, when both those hormones are elevated, they activate mTOR, which then further promotes damage to the cells and, has, has, and is permissive for, for cancer. A lot of mechanisms happening. You know, when we have a, a large exposure to nutrients, in other words, we're not just talking about the vitamin C and the tocotrienols and tocopherols and terpenes. We're not just talking about enough nutrients to prevent scurvy and enough you know, niacin to prevent pellagolin. Enough. We're, we're talking about enough nutrients to stabilize longevity proteins, to protect the telomeres, to keep our stem cells healthy in later life. In other words, when we have excellent nutrition, 
and excellent exposure to nutritional to nutritional substances for decades. That then that that it's that's the protection we need for these. So you inhibiting or not permitting the abnormalities to build up and lead to come cancer. Cancer didn't happen overnight. It was a slow process that people allowed to have happen. And it starts in childhood when people are fed fast food and junk food and given a, a poor diet in childhood. We start to see the damage begin to accumulate then. You know, we see even, for example, the age of puberty in women affecting the risk of breast cancer 60 years later. Now the age of puberty, early puberty increases the risk of breast cancer. But let's say a normal puberty for a woman might say is age 16. The average puberty is age 12, 12 years old, but some people get it through puberty even younger than that. When, was, when did you eat the diet that affected whether it went through puberty at age 10 or age 14? When did that occur? Well, it's the diet you ate when you were two and three and four and five and six years old that affected what you age when you went through puberty. And the age of puberty affects whether you have prostate cancer or breast cancer when you're 60. What I'm saying right now is that it's your lifetime exposure to your, these factors that affect your risk, and it's even your exposure to these factors before you were born, because there's even some exposure to bad health and bad nutrition from what your parents ate before, you even, before they even gave birth to you. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life at healinglife.net you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at healinglife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So... I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net, and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. What's your response to people who've been told by their medical doctors? Because I've met a number of these people. I even see very respected, very intelligent experts, authors up on stages speaking about like the blood type diet and that they can't do an all plant-based diet or their doctor told them they have to have meat and dairy because of various reasons because their blood type etc you know what is your take on that what's your response to people who have either been told that from a doctor or they believe that because of, of something they've read well there's, there's no science or even clinical evidence you know we once we have two things we have a body of scientific literature that we have to really investigate and look at in depth. And then we have a really clinical experience with people and, and patients seeing what happens over the years. And I'm lucky to have 30 years of, you know, thousands of people with experience and seeing what, go, what goes on in this community. So there's no data to suggest that certain people, because of their blood type, corresponds with a diet that's better for them. You know, that's, that's just, there's no evidence in the scientific literature and there's no clinical evidence either. So that's a completely nonsensical re hypothesis 
and no more than a person's eye color, shoe size, a mother's, mother's maiden name spelled backwards can detect what they should be eating. Now that doesn't mean that some people are not thriving on a diet that's all vegan. That's a completely different issue. It's nothing to do with their blood type. For example, there are some people, um, for a lot of reasons, there are some people, for example, who don't convert the ALA in fatty, in, in let's say nuts and seeds and greens into first EPA and DHA sufficiently for adequate brain function in later life, putting them at high risk of depression. That's genetically determined by their conversion enzymes. It's not by their blood type. You know, we have to investigate that. There are some people who, because of their earlier life, they may, there are some children who aren't going to thrive on a vegan diet. You know, they, they, their diet needs more protein and more fat because the way they assimilate and digest protein is different from somebody else. And there are some elderly people who require more, their digestive ability to handle protein goes down with aging and they get their IGF-1 can become too low and if it gets too low, it can suppress immunity, also increasing risk of cancer. And therefore, the diet has to be designed to be more than protein adequate. In some cases, animal products might be advisable in small amounts to help these people bring their IGF-1 up to an acceptable level. What I'm saying is there are individual differences, yes, that make for the necessity to, in some cases, adjust the diet to individual needs. But in no way is that based on, can be based on blood type. There has to be a more detailed and thorough investigation. And, and history and knowing the person and just go and reading a book and saying my blood type means I should eat meat. That's just insanity. In your experience, is that a high percentage of people, middle, low percentage of people that, that need that kind of customized tailorization to their diet um, because of their genetic predisposition that's not allowing them to, to process certain nutrients in certain ways? Is that high percent, low percent? What's been your experience with that? It depends on what we're looking at. Um, you know, I, a lot of people as they get older may, be, may have different abilities to process zinc and some people may do better with more zinc and help, you know, remove. So I think that's somewhat variable, but I think generally speaking, there's more people as they age that require more zinc with regard to DHA, for example. I think it's about half the population on vegan diets get a level that's not optimal and about a quarter get levels that are potentially dangerous. Um, if they don't supplement or do, or do something. I think with regard to, you know, a nutritarian diet, which I recommend, um, is generally mostly um, vegan, but a person could use animal products in small amounts. But the design of the diet is so protein favorable already. It's a type of plant-based diet that's very protein favorable compared to other plant-based diets. So it's less likely you're going to get a toddler with failure to thrive or an elderly person with low levels of IGF-1. But that doesn't mean those people don't exist. And you don't just willy-nilly thrust a diet on a child who isn't thriving and gaining weight or doing well and say, well, um, I think this diet is best for him. It's not thriving. Some kids need to have the eggs added to their diet or have some animal protein if they're not thriving on a vegan diet, just like some elderly people do who are starting to get muscle wasting and, and, and lack of thriving because their IGF-1 goes too low. And there's even some people whose cholesterol gets excessively low, whose brain is sensitive to low cholesterol and can develop you know, more anxiety or depression or more, um, or not, or not have it from a diet that's too low and that, that's completely vegan. So there's unusual circumstances that happen to individuals. So your question about when that happens, I would say not that often, probably is not, not five in a hundred people would have that concern. Maybe, maybe it's more like um, two in a hundred that requires some modification to that. But we want to at least be, um, what's the word, aware 
that every person doesn't fit the same ideal mold and we have to look at people and check them and see how they're doing, make sure they're thriving on the advice they're given. But one thing we know that when a person does need some animal product in the diet and is otherwise not thriving on a vegan diet, we don't want to switch to like a paleo diet and give them a lot of animal products. We want to regulate the amount of animal product so they get just enough to bring their IGF-1 in the normal range, not to push it up high to create damage. So, you know, I, there's, a, for example, there was a study on 6,000 people filed for 18 years, and they showed in the highest tertiary of animal protein consumption, there was a 75% increase overall death rate over that 18-year period, and a 400% increased risk of cancer over that 18-year period in the 50 to 65-year-olds. When we looked at the elderly people who were like 70 and 80 years old, and they followed them for 18 years, then in the highest tertiary of animal product compared to the lowest tertiary, you did not see the danger from the high amount of animal products. So the animal product, because they were counteracting each other, because some people in the elderly category don't thrive with a diet that low in protein. What I'm saying right now is the healthier you are and the more you're eating right, the more you keep your youthful vigor, your digestion is normal, you can stay eating, your body's ability to assimilate, that it's protein, stays adequate. There's, but if the more you eat unhealthy, the, all through your life, the more you can become more dependent on animal products when you're older because you're, because you're not handling protein, you've caused some problems um, because you allowed yourself and your digestive tract to age faster. So it's complicated and we have to just be a little cautious and aware that it's not quite one program fits all. Could it also be that small percent, that one or two percent or three percent of people who have a challenge on a, on a vegan diet, could it be that they're not getting enough diversity uh, in their diet? Because we do know so far, I think the latest statistic I saw was there's at least 150,000 different types of edible medicinal plants that have been identified on the planet so far. If you go to the grocery store, you're usually only going to see maybe a couple dozen out of 150,000, right? So could it potentially be that those people are just not getting enough diversity of different types of the plants to support uh, the, the wholeness and healing of their body? Probably not, because absolutely I'm agreeing with what you're saying, that on, this, on my Nutritarian program, one of the, the benefits and one of the things we're striving for is a wide variety and assortment of different plant species and natural plants, including microgreens and baby vegetables and sprouts. And so we're so a definitely nutritional variety of all the time. It's definitely an asset to longevity and for our body's ability to resist disease and immune system strength. But what I'm saying right now is in looking at a population of people already eating, you know, a really a, a diet that's not just cutting out animal products, but going after more excellent nutrition. The question is if, if they're getting into trouble on these vegan diets, on a vegan diet, what are they possibly missing that the vegan diet isn't giving them? And it's true, it's usually DHA, zinc, could be iodine if they're not eating seafood or seaweed. Um, K, could be K2, but usually not. It could be D, vitamin D, but usually not. It's usually most often DHA, zinc. And then, of course, what we're saying now is that um, the protein issue, and what, if they're needing more protein, isn't coming from nutritional diversity or plant diversity. We're measuring IGF-1. And we're saying that their IGF-1 levels are dangerously low, and they're having body wasting. So it's a combination of muscle wasting, muscle atrophy, we call it sarcopenia, in conjunction with very low levels of IGF-1. We can regulate that IGF-1 with the amount of protein, and we can't get it up to an, an, an adequate level, it's a dangerously low level, with enough plant protein in the diet. 
then we have to consider adding some animal products to that person. So it's not, you know, we're not going to raise the IGF-1 when it's very low. And I'm saying, admittedly, this is not common, but it's just something that as of health professionals taking care of people with the issues that, you know, that we're aware of, that if a person's not thriving, we're looking at blood tests to evaluate why they're not thriving. So majority of the people that come to you um, to heal chronic diseases such as cancer, um, what, so what is that uh, the best diet that you recommend for people, for majority of people? Right, that's right. The standard diet I recommend for, to, to people who have early stage cancers or who want to extend their lifespan is the same diet basically I recommend for people with autoimmune conditions who want to get well from lupus and psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis you know, and, and um, Sjogren's syndromes and, the, and connect, mixed connective tissue disease and autoimmune hepatitis. It's the same immune system strengthening diet with the G-bombs, with two glasses of fresh squeezed vegetable juice a day in the vegetable juice. I, the reason I'm giving them vegetable juice, of course, is because by eating right, you're taking in those nutrients, but you can't consume as much of the nutrients as you could by adding the juices. And it takes these people six to nine months to get the levels of nutrients in the cells and the tissues to the level where, the, to where my mind are, for example, eating this way for years. So we give them juices to bring them up quicker to get them more. And the juice has one third um, cruciferous, like bok choy, cabbage, kale. One third is something like um, carrot beet. And the other third is something like lettuce, um, dark green lettuces, you know, celery or a cucumber. So we're giving them this one-third, one-third, one-third juice twice a day, and they still have a large salad that they chew with the onions and the mushrooms, and the cooked mushrooms, of course. Mushrooms are very powerful in the anti-cancer protocol, but they should be cooked because they have a mild carcinogen called agaritine that have blown off with cooking. We want them to be exposed to multiple mushroom species. We want them to even eat them. I even give my patients with cancer a mixed mushroom supplement with, different, with 14 different mushroom species in it. They usually have some, um, are exposed to green tea, extracts of green tea. And they, of course, are having this high plant-based diet with, with a large exposure to onions and mushrooms and berries and seeds. And they're using um, nuts and seeds as a source of fat and not using oil because, they're, they're, we want the, because there is, there's beneficial anti-inflammatory and, and immune system supporting nutrients in the nuts and seeds, and they're absorbed very, very slowly, whereas oils absorb very rapidly and leads to more body fat production and more cytokine and pro-inflammatory modulation and a response by the body. So their fat intake and a little bit of fat intake, like a half an ounce with each meal, helps facilitate the green vegetables, the chewing of the greens and the other nutrients they're eating. So they're getting a very, we're trying to give them a very wide spectrum of natural foods, lots of different types of vegetables, um, a big salad every day, a bowl of vegetable bean soup, you know, and, and of course, other exposure to other, um, other beneficial um, foods as well. What's your take on the ketogenic diet? Um, my take is that it's been proven to be lifespan shortening already in, in large-scale epidemiologic studies. Um, every diet looked at when you start to get a diet restricting fruit and restricting plant carbohydrates, you're restrict, restricting fiber, and you're restricting exposure to phytochemicals. And we know that it causes acidosis. The ketogenic is ketoacidosis. It comes some degree of acidosis in the system. So, it may, so in every short-term study, you could do a short-term study on a ketogenic diet showing benefits to lowering triglycerides or body weight reduction or diabetes reduction due to weight loss. But every study looking at large-scale numbers with high amounts was going on for decades. We see there was a study published in 2018 and, 2000, and there was actually one study in 2019 too that looked at um, 
long-term people on fruit restriction or ketogenic diets or higher causes of death. What I'm saying right now is the scientific literature um, is pretty um, comprehensively showing that ketogenics may be dangerous long-term. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not gonna find certain cancers that may be responsive to it, may be a combination of chemotherapy with a ketogenic diet. In other words, let's say, for example, we may believe a cancer, a certain type of lymphoma, or a certain type of soft tissue glioma, like a brain tumor. And these tumors are insulin, you need insulin to fuel the growth of these tumors, and we completely restrict insulin by putting them on a ketogenic diet. It makes them more sensitive to chemotherapy. You give them the chemotherapy with the ketogenic diet, it knocks the tumor out, less chance of recurrence. So even though I'm suggesting that a ketogenic diet is not safe for the long term for people's health and longevity, and certainly not a diet I'm recommending, I'm saying it may be the case with, with more scientific investigation. And there are some scientists investigating this in New York City, for example, that are putting people with cancer on a combination of ketogenic diets with chemotherapy and seeing better response to the chemo than people who were not put on, that were not. So I'm not saying there might be, there may not be, I'm, I'm, there may be a therapeutic indication for a ketogenic diet for certain conditions and certain types of cancers that we will discover in the future, and I'm not wiping out that possibility. But I am saying we have to take care about that because the long-term utilization of ketogenic diets is not lifespan favorable. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not something that you uh, would recommend to, to your patients and clients at this time, but something you know worth continuing to see. Where to investigate, can. right. You have patients that come to your retreat center in San Diego, right? And people yes. stay with you for weeks or months at a time. And tell me a little bit more about that process. What does that look like? Somebody has cancer or chronic disease or wants to, to heal, um, they come and stay with you. What does that person experience? What kind of things can they hope for? Share a little bit more about that. I think, and you probably would agree, I think most everybody watching would agree, there are a lot of people that know they should eat healthier, they want to eat healthier, but that's having trouble doing it. That processed foods and eating unhealthy is just too attractive. And they're so ingrained into their social environment that it becomes part of their, their recreation and part of their social lifestyle. And so what I'm saying right now is food is physically, unhealthy food is physically addicting. And it also is socially addicting. And people, so they they unable to comply with what they think they or know they should do. And so what I'm saying right now is we have people that are overweight, they have heart disease, they have diabetes, they have autoimmune disease, they have cancers, and they want to get well. And, they real, and they're also somewhat suffering from food addiction. When we put them, when, we put them, when they bring, come into the facility, my retreat, we have three incredible chefs that show them how great healthy food can taste. We keep them there long enough to retrain their taste buds so they're not constantly eating all the salt and heavy sweets and all the junk food they can't quit. So it's like, it's like going away to come off cigarettes. You've got to spend time away from not having cigarettes so they're going to keep wanting more nicotine. You've got to go get away from your cocaine if you're going to start not want to snort anymore. You've got to get away from the, from the addictive pull of this illicit love affair you have with unhealthy foods to be able to enjoy a guava and a, and a kumquat and to enjoy eating salads with pomegranate on them and a healthy dressing. So we show them how food can taste great. We have food addiction counselors there in groups, you know, so we're giving them groups to try to deal with their emotional eating problems that led them to become overweight and sickly to begin with. And they're learning through my lectures and through the staff, 
you know, where there's a lot of fun things to do there. So it's a beautiful place, you know, like a saltwater pool and hiking and, you know, and biking and, and um, exercise classes and yoga and all the other things going on, cooking classes. But they're really there to get an education too. And they're being cared for by me and getting, and they're learning about and getting motivated and informed. So they really learn how to do this, make it work most effectively and enjoy the process so they can replicate it when they go home. So they learned, like if, if, you are, if you're uh, 150 pounds overweight, you're not going to lose 150 pounds staying with me for two months. You'll lose about 50 pounds, right? So, or, so I had like one woman, Nicole, she lost 50 pounds when she was there. But the year she went home, she lost 150 more, you know, because she knew what to do and she knew what, how to replicate this in her home. It's very hard for people to grasp how to do this. If you've got, um, you know, my sister-in-law who had breast cancer, for example, she didn't follow my program at all. She thought that, you know, we're a little too extreme and, you know, it wasn't for her and, you know, but then she got cancer. And now the question is, how do we do this? How do you make it taste good? I want to do it now. I realize my mistake. And then, and now, of course, this is decade, you know, this is, um, she's doing great. She has no cancer. She's fine. She, you know, she's, she changed her life and it saved her life. But the point is, it was great that I was here to, and my wife and I could show her how to make the food taste great. Um, how to do, how to incorporate this in your life. It's, you know, so we have this place that it's really um, very rewarding to be able to see people and facilitate them getting better and to watch the transformation occurs, to occur. And so they get healthy and I'm, you know, I have people that are come in where they're, you know, almost ready to have a heart attack and they do, you know, get their blood pressure and their cholesterol down, they get their weight off. And, they, and we have people come in who have, you know, finally have prostate cancer or, or um, or breast cancer and they and they want to start to rechange the way they're they're eating and really learn this way of life and it's just it works great when you can put a, a separate them from the fast food and negative assault environment they're in at home and really get them to retrain their taste buds they love eating this way and they realize why they can learn to prefer this over their um, unhealthy diet and as we wrap up uh, kind of final thoughts what maybe three or so steps for those tuning in who are serious about wanting to prevent cancer or heal or reverse cancer in their own bodies. What, in the, what kind of steps could people take right now to start on that journey? And what do they need to think about um, to support the longevity of, of that journey? I'm gonna keep it real simple. I want people to have a big salad with mixed green vegetables, with onions and tomatoes and cooked mushrooms on it, with a dressing made of nuts and seeds. I might make a dressing, for example, with a peeled navel orange, with sesame seeds and cashews, with blood orange vinegar and a squeeze of lemon, or a roasted tomatoes with roasted garlic and some almond butter mashed together with a little, with a little fig vinegar. In other words, you make a nut and seed based dressing on a big salad, and you have a bowl of vegetable bean soup and a piece of fruit for dessert. Lunch is the most important meal of the day, salad, vegetable bean soup, and the soup should be like an anti-cancer soup made with the, with, the, with the zucchinis and the onions and the leeks and the bok choy and all the, all the different beneficial nutrients in it. You can make it on the weekend, and you can have the same soup for four or five days in a row. And then breakfast, you should have a glass of fresh squeezed vegetable juice with a little bit of intact grain, a small amount of intact soaked grain and water with the flax seeds or the chia seeds and some berries like wild blueberries or low sugar berry like you know, blackberries or blueberries or guava or, you know, some kind of low sugar fruit mixed in with that for flavor with the seeds because the seeds, the hemp and the chia and the flax, it's the vehicle to eat that with the glass of vegetable juice. And then dinner should be an earlier and lighter dinner. We should not be, one of the secrets to fighting disease and increasing longevity and fighting cancer 
is going to bed on an empty stomach. You don't want to eat a big meal at night. You want to eat your meals earlier in the day and you want to go to bed so you haven't eaten food between at least probably four hours before you go to bed at night. So you go to sleep on an empty stomach and you sleep and rest in bed while you're not digesting food in the secret. So that's a rough roundup of what of the diet, which could be then adjusted and, and to individual needs and differences, but that's basically where we start from. Well, thank you so much. I know um, on your website, uh, we'll share that link with everybody. It's drfurman.com. You can look on the webpage where this video is hosted. Uh, we'll also write out the link for you. You can click it or type it in, go to the website. I know you have great recipes in your books. I know you have great videos and free resources on your website. Um, I know that you have uh, an online e-learning uh, e uh, area as well as online courses and so forth. So for people who are very interested in learning more about this, uh, I encourage you to go to Dr. Furman's website. Um, and again, you can uh, find that uh, website on this page. So uh, Dr. Furman, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, for being here, for sharing your wisdom, as you said. I know we could talk about a lot of these subjects for another one or two hours and right. to uh, maybe do a follow-up interview with you at some point in the future. We could, uh, after this um, uh, uh, summit airs and people have questions and things like that, um, we could bring those questions to a future interview um, That'd be great. as well. So those of you tuning in, let us know what other things you'd like to hear in the future. And again, uh, drfurman.com, go to his website, check out his retreats, books, online courses, and so forth. So yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for, for sharing. You're such a wealth of knowledge. My pleasure. And I'm wishing you, of course, all your, you and all your listeners great health. Thank you for happy. listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe and share this on social media. Then head over to nathancrane.com for your free ebook. So when we're talking about, you know, what are these underlying causes and conditions of these chronic diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they all have very similar, if not identical causes. And that's the thing is when we get to the root cause of these diseases, we can not only prevent these diseases from ever happening, but empower our bodies to heal from them. In every one of our cells, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening every second that are cycling uh, back and forth. It's like sort of a, a yin and yang. And you know, for me, the soul, soul's purpose is evolution. It doesn't care about comfort, it cares about evolution. Mm. And so I think so long as we are following our soul, then we will evolve. And I think what sometimes blocks us from living our purpose, from manifesting that next level of our expression, is we have not evolved. There is also a time for letting go all the expectations and relax and just breathe and be grateful for what you have achieved.